Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. So we do thank you guys for coming back. Uh, If this is your first week with us in this series, we've been talking about the book of Hosea over the last two weeks. And really, we've just kind of been setting the context and the framework for this uh, really difficult book. I've been surprised, even in my own study, how difficult this story is. And tonight I can attest it doesn't get that much easier, but just kind of laying the foundation for the work that we're doing. Hosea chapter one through three sets the framework for the entire book. So we have these stories of Hosea being called by God to go and to marry in the Hebrew text. It's a woman of harlotry. Uh, Some people might translate that as a prostitute. I think that's a bit of a mistranslation, but an immoral woman, Hosea, the prophet, is called to go and marry her, and not only to marry her, but to have children of prostitution or harlotry or however you want to translate that. They're going to be in a relationship together, and they're going to have children. We learned last week that they had three kids, and those kids have names that are symbolic of the relationship that God has with Israel. Those names are Jezreel, which doesn't mean a whole lot to us. And last week, we learned that that is the setting of a really bloody battle uh, from King Jehu, Uh, who was taking over um, the northern kingdom. He also decided to kill in that moment the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And Jehu was having this kind of bloody battle. And God is wanting the name of Hosea and Gomer's first child to be Jezreel as a symbol of that. It would be uh, similar to us naming a child Wounded Knee or Hiroshima or some kind of site place name of a mass atrocity. And Jezreel would would grow up and kind of be this sign to the people. Uh, Hosea and Gomer also had a little girl that they named not compassioned or not pitied, uh, something to that effect. And then they had another kid that they named not my people. And all three of these children had a role to play. They were all living embodiments of the message that God was telling the people of Israel to avoid the path that they're on, to go into a different direction and to follow God once again. This whole chapter is set up as a prophetic sign act where the prophet is living out this sort of really weird call that God is giving to his people. In Hosea chapter three, we also get kind of a first person testimony from Hosea about this marriage and the difficulties therein. But in chapter two, what we get is more of a poetic allegory where God is is trying to demonstrate what is really at stake here in this 
prophetic sign act. One scholar says chapter two is composed as an allegory with individual characters representing the situation of Yahweh with his people. The entire sequence is cast as an allegory about a husband, his wife, their children, and the illicit lovers of the wife and the mother. And the reason why the scholar is wanting to push the allegory motif so hard is because the text that we are going to read this evening is very difficult extremely difficult if this was something that actually happened in this historical context. So here, he's wanting to move us to be thinking about this as poetry, to be thinking about this as allegory, but also seeing that the whole reason why Hosea was called to marry Gomer, this woman of harlotry, this immoral woman, was to demonstrate the unfaithfulness of Israel and their commitment to God. It was wayward. It was broken, if anything else. They were going after the gods of their immediate cultural context. They were following after the Baals, the people that they thought would give them fertility, the people that they thought that would give them sustenance and, and fruit and, and life. And here we see in this allegory that this is not the case. Now, my, my plan for this evening is just to walk us through the text. We're not going to read it and then say the word of God for the people of God. We're just going to march on through. I've got a little bit of commentary. And just because you guys are so special and just because you guys are so excited to be here, I've got not one but two sermons for you tonight, all rolled into one. Okay, I think that there is a stopping place that we'll see where we could just pause there and go right on out the doors. But it's at that moment where I want us to be thoughtful and considerate and then say, let's get back in it and do some more work. Okay, because, you know, I'm a little bit OCD and I like to make sure that we cover all of our bases. And there's a massive um, point of teaching that I think needs to be addressed. But before we get there, I think we can do some uh, some work of applications. You guys good with that? Okay, so this is Hosea chapter two. Uh, It it begins, uh, at least the section that we're looking at this evening in verse two, it says, level a charge against your mother or plead with her. Uh, I've been reading the Common English Bible, and this is a little bit unfortunate because the Hebrew verb there is the same. It's plead uh, against your mother, plead, or level a charge against your mother, level a charge. This is a, a legal sort of setting that this allegory is being set, this framework that we're seeing. God is asking the children, in this, in this marriage to plead against their mother who represents Israel. It goes on, she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Another way that you could translate that is she is not my woman and I am not her man. Because of what is happening here, the relationship has been completely fractured and we are no longer in relationship together. Some scholars wonder if this is an announcement of divorce Um, or if this is just some sort of notice of the fact that the marriage has been fractured. We don't have a lot of evidence for what it would take to become divorced in the ancient world, so some people want to move us away from that. And also, this is not a divorce court proceeding. This is not people who are going to get a divorce. This is people who are going to strive to reconcile their relationship. Okay, it says, level a charge against your mother, plead with her. She's not my wife. I'm not her husband, but I want her to be. I want to maintain this relationship with her. Continues on. Let her remove prostitution from her presence. Very literally, that's the same word that's used in chapter one, where Hosea is called to marry a woman of harlotry. Let her remove her harlotry, not just from her presence, but from her face. 
and let her remove her adultery from between her breasts. Now, some people would say this is indicative of either like the makeup that prostitutes would wear or the tokens that showed that one is going after the Baals, after the foreign gods, as if they would have a trinket on a necklace or some sort of marking that would let people around them know that this person has literally prostituted themselves to the Baals in order to become fertile, in order to have children. We don't know for sure, but these are clear signs, and this is what God is asking this person to do. Let her remove the prostitution from her presence and adultery from her breasts, or else I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day that she was born. And now this is where we start to get into some dangerous territory, because the image that's being painted here is God as the lover that has been torn. God as the lover that has been hurt and the language that's used is difficult. Let her take those marks of prostitution on her head or on her forehead or on her face and the the adultery, the signs of adultery from between her breast or else I will strip her naked as on the day that she was born. This for a 21st century American is difficult stuff. Can I get an amen? This is weird stuff. So now before we go any farther, let's remind ourselves that we are reading ancient literature in an ancient context. And this doesn't help us to get away with all of these issues, but I do think it's important for us to see this. He says, let these things go away. Let her stop being the person that she is. Let Israel not follow after these foreign gods. Let her come back to me so that I don't have to do these things. A couple scholars say the threat to strip Israel naked recalls the cursed language of a number of ancient Near Eastern treaties, wherein to be stripped naked like a prostitute is one metaphor of the punishment for breaking a treaty covenant. This is not unique to the Israelite prophets, but this is something set within this context that would make sense to an ancient audience, even if it seems very dicey to us. To be stripped like a prostitute is a theme which appears in the treaty cursed traditions of the ancient Near East, meaning in this time, in this moment. The threat may have overtones of punishment for covenant breaking, James Luther Mays says. And finally, the stripping is likely a metaphor for the humiliating punishment that Israel will suffer in the historical process. Remember last week when we were talking about Isaiah walking around buck naked as if to demonstrate the way that the people would be routed and stripped of their clothes. It would, it would indicate that. His sign was to say, this is what these people will look like when they face judgment. They will be marched off in unison, naked, back to the place of their captors. And finally, if you want to think about this um, stripping in, in another, uh, another framework, it's also the duty of the husband to clothe the wife. And what God seems to be saying here is, I'm done. If she can't get rid of those marks of prostitution and the marks of adultery, I'm done. It's almost like he's giving somewhat of an ultimatum and set within this context as the husband's job to provide his wife with food and clothes. God is moving away saying, I will no longer be this person for her. She will not be my woman and I will not be her man any longer. 
Uh, the, the imagery gets a little bit even more intense depending on how you read it. He says, I will make her like a desert and turn her into a dry land and make her die of thirst. Now, remember, in the very opening chapter, God is saying, go marry this woman of uh, prostitution, this woman of harlotry, because the land has prostituted itself and has followed after other gods. And here, the image does not seem to be of Israel as wife, but Israel as the land. I will make her not like like a fruit-bearing country anymore. I will make her like a desert and turn her into a dry land where she will die of thirst. This is really polemical because the God that the people are going after, not Yahweh, but the Baal, is known as the storm God. Remember those fertility rites where they would go expecting that Baal would rain upon the land and impregnate it with life. And what God is saying here is kind of poking at that ideology, saying, I'm going to make Israel into a desert. I'm going to turn her into a dry land. She is going to have no sustenance, no rain, nothing. The gods that she is going after will not be able to help her. Are you with me? Okay. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, I will also have no compassion on her children because they are children of prostitution. And again, this doesn't mean that they are the offspring of um, a prostitute and her John, if you will. It's because they too are showing characteristics of immorality, of unfaithfulness, of going after other gods. These children mirror this sort of thing. They are also children of prostitution. Their mother has played the prostitute or played the whore. She who has conceived them has behaved shamefully. She says, I will seek out my lovers. They will give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen cloth, my oil and my drink. Literally there, it's my wool and my flax. And from flax, you can make linen cloth. But it's, it's talking about the daily sustenance that you need to survive. Bread and water, the clothes that you wear, whether they be wool or linen, and oil and drink. This is a term here for um, pleasurable drinks, if that means anything to you. The adult beverages of the ancient Near East, the, the things that make life uh, good here. She is saying that I will seek out these foreign gods that I've been trying to find their attention and, and get their love because they are giving me all of the things that I need, not knowing, as we'll find out, that it's actually from God that she gets these things. Her idea and her focus has shifted from what God is and from who God is. And we see here that she is demonstrating this religious adultery. However you deal with the sexual issues, what Israel is demonstrating right here and right now is the God that brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, the God that has demonstrated himself to be faithful and good and just, the God that has uh, delivered them and given them life. They have said, no, thank you. I want to go over here because this is where I get my food and my clothes and my adult beverages. They are turning their back on God, and this is painting a picture of much consternation for God. And the, the, the poem here in Hosea chapter 2, it's, it's structured according to three different uses of this word, therefore, lacane in the Hebrew text. And these are the things that God is going to do in order to win his woman back, in order to win Israel back into the fold. These are the things that God is going to do. First, I will line her path with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she can't find her paths. The image there is as of penning in an animal. 
And here, this is the same sort of language that God is saying of these people. They're going after their foreign gods. They're going after all of these, uh, these pagan gods. And I want to hedge them in so that they cannot do that anymore. It says, she will go after her lovers. And remember, in the role of a prostitute, most of the times you will say wherever you are and you will wait for people to come to you, but not so with Israel. She will go after her lovers, but she won't catch up with them. She will seek them, but she won't find them. She is completely subverting uh, the practices of the time in this moment. And then she will say, I will return to my first husband for I had it better then than I do now. She's going after actively seeking all of these foreign gods so that they can give her the things that she needs and she is not finding fulfillment there. And she says, you know what? I guess I'll go back to my first husband because life was better for me then than it is now. And we can pause there for a moment. Elizabeth Octemeyer says, Israel's decision to return to Yahweh is crucial in this passage because it shows what Israel is looking for from her God. She wants material goods. She wants prosperity. She wants multiplication of her population. In short, what she wants is the good life. And in this attitude, Israel mirrors those in our day who turn to religion to gain success or wealth, political office, or social approval. Israel back then is no different than us when we utilize religion religion and when we utilize God and when we utilize Jesus to get the things that we want so that we can pray the prayers to get the blessings, but we are not in it beyond the advantages that it sets up for us. This is what we see in this passage. Israel is going after these foreign gods to get bread and water and clothes and adult beverages. And when that dries up, she'll go back to God and say, well, I guess I'll give you a turn now. And I think that we can pause for a moment and self-assess and think that if our religious commitments to Jesus look anything like that, I'll follow you as long as it's good. I'll follow you as long as I'm getting blessed. But when the stuff hits the fan, I'll go look somewhere else. I'll follow you as long as it gets me accolades. I'll follow you as long as it, it makes me look good. But when it doesn't, I'll look somewhere else. It's easy for us at times to go back to these ancient stories and to say things like, Israel's so dumb. Why, keep, why does she keep following after all these foreign gods? And it might not be that we are going to sacrifice things to a foreign god. But if we aren't at times pursuing sex, money, power, greed, the idols of our moment, I think at times those are things that need to be addressed. And perhaps even in this context, we could add to that because those sound kind of devious, don't they? Sex and power and money. How about just being happy? How about the idol of just making sure that life is all okay and you'll do whatever you can do to feel that, to have that. And if God gives it to you, great. And if God doesn't, you'll go look for it somewhere else. We are not so dissimilar from Israel in this passage. But here, Octomire, I think, is, is very poignant in pointing out what Israel is all about. She just wants the good life. And we aren't so different because you know God doesn't always call us to San Diego and Mexico. No, you know, offense. 
sometimes the thing that God calls us to do is to love the person that we do not love. Sometimes the thing that God calls us to do is to make amends with the person that has hurt us. Sometimes what God asks us to do is to step in and to mend a wound. Sometimes what God asks us to do is the thing that we do not want to do. Sometimes leaving and going to start fresh is the easy move, and sometimes staying here and fighting for your relationships is even more difficult. And we just want the good life. Another commentator says, when devotion to the Baals becomes fruitless, the people will reverse their earlier commitment. When they have lost what they once had, like the prodigal son, they will take a second thought. Life with the former husband was better than being a harlot to Baal. When devotion becomes fruitless, we'll do whatever we can do to find the fruit again. The second, therefore, in this passage, it says, so, or therefore, now I will take back my corn, really my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my linen cloth, which were to cover her nakedness. God is saying, I'm going to take these things back. The things that this woman Israel thought that the Baals or the foreign gods were giving to her, I'm going to take them back now so that she'll know it actually came from me. And this is where it gets really dicey. I'm going to take away my wool and my linen cloth, which were to cover her nakedness. Remember, I'm going to take back that husbandly duty where I am clothing her and I'm going to leave her in a more precarious position. It says, now I will uncover her nakedness. And the way that this wording uh, shows up in the Hebrew is frightening. Now I will uncover her nakedness. I think that our translations are a bit euphemistic in this. And this is standard prophetic language where you see the woman who is being left naked and having her dress pulled over her head in some passages in the Bible. I will uncover her nakedness in plain view of her lovers and no one will rescue her from me. All of the people that she has paraded herself to asking for uh, hope and help they will not be able to help her in this moment. And when we back up and we see God as the one who is the subject of these verbs, it gets difficult. We'll come back to that. He says, I will end all her religious celebrations, her festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all of her sacred seasons. Basically, one commentator said, this is like taking away Christmas and Easter. God is going to end all of the religious routines because what has happened is Israel has seen how people worshiped Baal and they've taken God and they've just put him in place of that. It's called syncretistic worship where everything that was focused in one foreign God, they've put God, uh, the God of Israel into that frame and he says, I'm done with it. All of these things that you're doing, they're meaningless and they're wrong. Stop it. I will put an end to all of these religious celebrations. Some scholars note that it's important that it's her religious celebrations and her festivals and her new moons. These are not God's because she has distorted them and she has tainted them and she has turned them into something that they are not. This is not what this passage is about, but step with me over here into a moment that might be difficult for us. Have we turned this into something that it is not? Have we turned this or our college ministries or our prayer groups or Tuesday morning Bible studies or whatever, have we turned that into something of which God would say, you're just plugging in things here. 
And I'm not glorified by the things that you're doing. Because remember, you're just about the good life. It has nothing to do with me and following me. I think sometimes we have, um, we being TRP, sure, but like the American church, sometimes we have distorted true worship. Somebody told me a few weeks ago, they said, Josh, sometimes I think that you're really hard on the American church. Apologies. Sometimes I do wonder, though, if this is worth us pausing and thinking through what our celebrations look like and if they are honoring to God or if, like it says in Isaiah chapter one, God would say, you're making me sick with all of this stuff because you come into this place and you pray and you sing and then you go out there and you don't love people. You don't care about your neighbor. You don't live it out. So what is this? God says, I'm going to put an end to all of that. Verse 12, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my pay, which my lovers have given to me. I will change them, the Lord says, into a forest and the wild animals will eat them. This is standard prophetic language where he's taking a lush, verdant garden and turning it into a forest and, and allowing wild animals to have control over them. This is a really interesting Eden sort of um, play. So instead of Adam and Eve having domain and control over the animals, now everything has run amok and the wild animals are uh, taking over. Verse 13, I will punish her for the days dedicated to the Baals, those foreign gods that everyone around her and her herself are following after when she offered sweet smelling sacrifices to them and dressed herself up with rings and jewelry. And again, this might be the signs of the cult uh, that is focused on Baal. We don't know. And she, and she went after her lovers when God is the one who loves her and wants to be in relationship with her. And then it says, and she forgot about me. This whole allegory can be summarized in this last climactic phrase in verse 13. Israel has forgotten about the Lord. One scholar says Israel's harlotrous sin is summarized in the last line of verse 13, but she forgot me, says the Lord. Another scholar says Hosea 2.13 summarizes the indictment, her wealth displaying worship of the Baals and her going after these lovers rather than God. The concluding note is filled with pathos. They forgot me. There's a Jewish scholar named Abraham Joshua Heschel, which is almost how Abram got his name. He is Abram Joshua James. I really lobbied hard for Abraham. Kate was not having that. It's okay. We will, we will get there. Perhaps when Abe is confirmed, we will change his name, Allah, Abram, and Abraham in the Old Testament. No? Okay. Um, he has this whole thing about the pathos of God, the way that God feels, the connection that God has with us. Don't divorce the feeling of this husband who has been wronged by his wife, the anger, the fear, the rage. Don't take that away from what God feels in this moment. Uh, Fretheim says the concluding note is filled with this pathos as if God is so invested in us and we keep wronging him. He feels that they forgot me, he says. 
Finally, the concluding, but she has forgotten me. It mingles anger and anguish, accusation and appeal. It summarizes in a word the guilt of Israel and the problem of Yahweh. She has forgotten me. And at least in my first reading, I think that we have come to the end of the first sermon here. And this is why Hosea is a difficult book because we're not going to be able to kind of hold hands and pat each other on the back and say, this is great. Because what the prophets do is they call us to account and they call us to look in the mirror and to be honest with who we are and to say, have we forgotten God? Have we substituted God for all of these other cultural idols? Have we played the game where this is just part of the routine and we like it and we want it to be meaningful, but when we leave, we don't love, we don't strive for reconciliation and redemption. We just kind of do our own thing and then we come back here. Have we just played the game? Have we too forgotten about God? Chapter two is no different than chapter one. Because all throughout this book, there's a tension between the punishment of Israel that they deserve to get because of the ways in which they have wronged God and the reconciliation that God attempts to bring about for his people. This last little bit of this section, it says, therefore, the third and final, therefore, I will charm her. I will woo her. There is no repentance. This is going to be a bit controversial here, but just note it. There's no repentance in this passage. God's just saying these are the things that are happening. And then in this third and final, therefore, it says, I will woo her. I will seduce her. I will go after her. I will bring her into the desert where we once were in wedded bliss. That might be a bit of an overreading, but Hosea seems to be looking back to this moment when Israel is in the, in the wilderness wandering with God. And that's the only thing that they have. And God wants to woo and seduce Israel, this metaphor for his people, and bring them back into the desert and speak tenderly to her heart. From there, I will give her vineyards, the sign of fruitfulness. Anytime you have like free-flowing wine, this is a good thing in the Old Testament. I will give her vineyards and I will make the Acor Valley, which could also be translated the Valley of Trouble. I will turn the Valley of Trouble into a door of hope. That is beautiful. But what they're saying is I will overturn the moments of suffering and pain and I will give you hope. There she, Israel, will respond to me as in the days of her youth, like the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. God is moving his people from punishment into this door of hope. And I at least want us to sit with that for a moment, to look into that metaphorical mirror and to say, where am I in this process? Is this just part of the routine? Have I forgotten about God? Have I displaced God with these other things? And also, have I forgotten that God is moving me from the valley of trouble into a door of hope? The end of sermon number two. This passage is really stinking difficult because we're, we're forced to see images of God that might cause us um, alarm. 
the way in which this prophet is talking about the potential punishment of Israel is filled with violence towards women. And as 21st century Americans, it's difficult for us to see that and to hear that. One scholar says this is the, the, the linchpin for understanding this entire poetic uh, section here. The story of Hosea and Gomer in chapter one, it cannot be identified with the story of God and Israel given its metaphorical character. To say that Gomer's story is Israel's story, it speaks truth, but at the same time, Gomer's story is not Israel's story. Both claims must be made or the Gomer-Hosea marriage itself is not real. If you've missed everything, hear this. There is both a yes and a no to the marriage analogy that is developed. As we see this, this picture of God and Israel as husband and wife, there is both a yes and a no to that analogy, to that metaphor, to that understanding. There is a yes, for example, in the pain that is experienced when one uh, suffers through adultery, when one feels the faithlessness of a partner. There is a real pain that takes place in that moment and there is a real pain that God feels when his people go off to other gods. There is a yes to the pathos of God. This thing that, that Heschel keeps wanting us to, to remember is, is the, um, the emotional connection that God has to us. Man, we have sometimes, we put God so far out there somewhere that we don't believe that he is emotionally invested in who we are and feels the things that we make him feel, that feels the things that we put him through. Sometimes, perhaps we, and I don't mean this in any way that's disrespectful, but we wallow in our own mess and we don't think about the fracture that we have caused in this relationship. There's a yes to that when we see this marriage analogy and the closeness between these two people. That's the closeness that is mirrored in our relationship with God. There's also a yes to the just punishment that Israel receives. And this is not a growth, uh, gr church growing message. Like there's punishment that happens in the Old Testament that is rightfully deserved when people have, have written God off and they've gone in a different direction. There's a yes to that analogy, but there is a big resounding no to the metaphor and to the analogy of abuse. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because in our moment in the church, there are real discussions happening now in certain denominations as to whether or not physical and verbal and psychological abuse is grounds for divorce and certain key figures in said denominations are legitimizing and even encouraging wives who are being abused to stay in those relationships because God does not want divorce to happen. We have this, this really strange moment in the life of the church where some people might be waffling on abuse in a marital relationship. And if this needs to be said, no. No physical, no verbal, no psychological abuse is in any way befitting of the people of God or human beings in general. And if you find yourself in a situation like this, you have at least my blessing to seek help and to remove yourself from a dangerous situation. Do not, we cannot read Hosea chapter two and allow ourselves to say, this is how it worked here and we can live in to that. 
If we were honest with ourselves, there are many relationships that are torn apart by abuse, and sometimes the church seems to be aiding those abusive relationships to continue because we do not want to call that sin, sin. One scholar says this, the prophets of Israel went to extraordinary lengths to convey to their audience the nature, the extent, and the consequences of their actions. The prophets repeatedly called upon some of the most explicit, provocative, and lurid images of human sexuality to personify what they saw as the nation's religious distortions and political blunders. The prophets are using very, very difficult language to, de to, dem um, to demonstrate the gravity of the relationship that we have with God and the way in which we may wrong God. And I hope that it doesn't even need to be said that this sort of text does not legitimize spousal abuse, nor would God be on board with that in any way, shape, or form. But what is meant to be taught through this passage is our decisions, our commitments, our faithfulness or lack thereof has real consequences. And if we can remember the commitments that we've made to God and to Jesus, if we can remember that the image that is meant to depict Christ and his church is that of a husband and a wife, I'm hopeful that we can live into that to begin to see um, not only our commitments, but also to remember that God is so invested in us that wherever we have been and whatever we have done, that he will transform this valley of trouble into a door of hope. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.